Hello, hello, and welcome to another book club episode of Rich Text. Our second, three times we'll make it official, right? Uh, I feel good about how we're doing here. Our book today is God Spare the Girls, a powerful exploration of American evangelical girlhood, womanhood, coming of age. Uh, I'm Claire. And I'm Emma. And we're so thrilled to be joined today by Kelsey McKinney, who is a features writer and co-founder of Defector Media, as well as obviously the author of God Spare the Girls, her debut novel, which comes out June 22nd. Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. We just found out you're a Bachelor fan. So like, (laughs) we're really just, you know, operating on all, firing on all cylinders today. This is a perfect match. We're all on the same wavelength. Exactly. Yes. We're taking this journey together. (laughs) And I have to say, if you watch The Bachelor um, and you're familiar with the brand of like Heartland Evangelical Christianity that is so prominent on The Bachelor, (laughs) you definitely need to read this book, uh, which took me far deeper into the heart of a megachurch than I have yet to gone, have ever gone in the past. Um, so to start off, Kelsey, can you just give our listeners like the basic synopsis of what the book is about? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a novel and it's a story about two sisters who are the daughter of a massive evangelical megachurch pastor who has a terrible secret that upturns their life. Yes, that see, even that little nugget just draws you in. It this really, <laughs> this book really is you know, it's, it's a, like a beautiful meditation on so many themes and also like really a page turner. So I'm curious, like where, where did this book come from? Like, why was this the novel you needed to write? So I grew up evangelical, um, and grew up in kind of this environment. And in, when I first started working on this, I was just working as kind of a way to process through my own, like loss of faith. And I working in fiction makes it feel less daunting, I guess, to ask those questions of yourself. And so I started there and then it's, it's weird because these girls don't exist, right? They're fake. Um, but the further you get into like a fictional project, the more you become attached to them. And so I like wanted to spend more time with them and see the ways that they could grow and change. And once I realized that I was working on a novel and not just like several stacks of yellow legal pads, I wanted to write something that I could have used, right? That I wanted to see the place where I grew up in a story that was mainstream. And I wanted it to be kind of presented in a way that both showed the flaws and showed that it can be a good place for people. Yeah. That's one thing that you do depict really powerfully is the way that uh, one of the sisters, Carolyn, who is sort of the the one that we're closest to, it's a very close third person on Carolyn, the way that she is starting to question her faith throughout the novel. Um, so for you, was that like a way of looking back at the process that that you went through and trying to make sense of that? Yeah, totally. I mean, Caroline's process is at the very beginning, right? She is just having these questions and she's kind of being forced to hold them in her hands and she doesn't know what to do with them, right? And she desperately wants to put them down. And that's an experience that I felt very deeply in late high school and that I couldn't quite process and didn't know how to figure out. I think Caroline is a bit um, quicker on that than I was, but I... Yeah, I think it is something that I really struggled with to try and figure out what you believe as an adult and how you kind of reckon with the culture you came from. 
Yeah. That really spoke to me as someone like who went through a similar process with my Catholicism (laughs) at a similar point in my life that like, you're used to just believing what people are telling you, what the priests are telling you or the preachers or your father. And what do you do when you can't get what you need from them to resolve the contradictions that you see? And when Um, you kind of, I think, start having these life experiences or or confronted with these realities that like fly in the face of, of those core beliefs. And I think that that's, you know, what the central conflict in your book does really well is like set off this process that I think a lot of readers will be able to relate to, like kind of no matter what your faith background is. Um, it felt both like very specific to the evangelical experience and also like very universal. And I, as, as a a cultural Jew, it was like, (laughs) I totally, like, I totally got into it and could see myself in, in these young women as well, which was really nice. That's great to hear. Thank you. (laughs) Like what's more universal, honestly, than like power structures that exist to like control girls and young women's mm-hmm. sexuality <laughs> like <laughs> right we've all yes. got them <laughs> they just take on different brands right but it's it's always there kind of for any young woman growing up in this culture yeah I mean I think that's part of why I like in the structure of the book right it's like you have kind of a first chapter and then in the second chapter Caroline like loses her virginity and that is kind of like the kickoff for all of these questions about her faith Um, And that's really intentional, right? To tie these two things together. Something that the church says is so, so, so important. You can't lose your virginity and then you do it. And you're like, is it fine actually? (laughs) That didn't seem like that big a deal. (laughs) It seemed fine, right? And I feel like that is, at least for me as a teen, that was a huge thing. This like conception of sex, reckoning with the way that culture told you about it in Mm. every way. And for that kind of forcing you to ask these questions that make you uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. That's so real. Like your, your sexuality is not this catastrophic thing. And it's hard to (laughs) think of it that way. Once you're actually experiencing it, like I went through, like not in the purity culture of the evangelical church, but like you go through this phase when you're like 12 or 13 or 14. And you're like, Oh, of course I'll wait for marriage. Like, why would I (laughs) want to give that part of myself away? And it's like, yeah, you don't have a sex drive yet. I'm like, cause you're a literal child. Cause you're a child. (laughs) Yeah. And so you make these promises and these commitments um, that seem very clear because you don't really understand what would bring you to break them. And then you develop that side of yourself And suddenly you're like, wait, I don't really understand why I'm doing this. I just sort of thought that it seemed like I might as well promise this. And now I'm struggling to stick to that. It it makes it difficult to buy into the whole belief system. Wow. In in, uh, my, you know, synagogue, we never had to to make a purity pledge. So yeah, that's probably you lose me there. What's it like? (laughs) What's it like? (laughs) Must be nice. Um, don't worry I had to untangle uh, the whole Jewish cultural identity from Woody Allen so that's like a whole yeah that's yeah yeah that's our you know, cross to bear <laughs> there's just there's no good place to grow up um I wanted to talk briefly at least about your epigraph because I'll read it quickly uh it's Genesis 19:8. look I have two daughters who have never slept with a man let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them but don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. 
Um, this is a verse that like has absolutely haunted me for years <laughs> and was really key to my own personal disillusionment with Christianity. <laughs> and so I'm really curious, like what your relationship is to it and why you wanted to preface the book with it. It's interesting because everyone I've talked to who grew up in any form of like Christian faith has said either something similar or said there was a verse like this that did it for me. Right. And I remember vividly hearing a pastor talk about Lot quickly when I was in high school, right? Like just (laughs) blow through it. And I, so I identify as bisexual. And so there was also like all of this like loaded baggage for me around the way that those verses are used. Um, But this verse in particular is one of those ones where like you pull it out from context and even in context, it's just fucking terrible. And you read it and you're like, how am I supposed to reckon with this? Like, even if I believe that everything in this book is true, how do I reckon with something so awful, right? How do I hold this? What do I do with it? And so I think part of the reason I wanted to kick off the book with that is that it kind of, if you have a relationship with the Bible or the Old Testament at all, this this verse will kind of already set you in that motion, right? Of like, you read it and you're like, oh no, this is something that I don't want to think about, right? This is something I don't want to deal with. And it gives you that kind of like ball of dread that like you have to carry with you through the whole book. So I don't think it will do that for everyone, but I'm, I'm, I hope it does it for some people. Yeah. It's I mean, it really, yeah, for me. it works. <laughs> yeah. There's just something about like, you know, in, in Catholicism, there's a de-emphasis, less so now, but there's a de-emphasis on the Bible. And I think this is why, because if you let just <laughs> ordinary people read the whole Bible, they're going to find a lot of horrifying stuff and that can cause a crisis of faith. Um, but then they try to like explain it to you and they're like, oh, well, this is actually about X, Y, and Z things. And if you actually know a little bit about the history and the, and you're like, I'm sorry, like, this is literally just a guy being like, you can rape my daughters because they're just my daughters. And I just don't really see a way that you can make that okay. Um, but then it, it is treated as this sort of like, well, you're of a lesser intellect then, like you don't, or godliness, mm-hmm. you don't understand. Um, and so, yeah, it was a huge trigger for me when I, when I read that at the beginning of the book and, and it brings like, there's, there are so many ways that you explore this gender dynamic throughout the book. Um, and I think we wanted to dig into yeah. to some of those, um, and, and like maybe sticking with the, the purity question, uh, the pastor, uh, Luke Nolan, who's the father of the two girls at the center of the book, is this internet famous like megachurch preacher. And his big reputation making sermon is a rebuttal to a purity metaphor that I think is probably familiar to like any girl who was raised in like a Christian faith. Like our, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say in all of America, because in I all feel of like America. this is essentially like, yeah, the underlying uh idea under like most abstinence only sex education in this country yes, which we were all essentially raised <laughs> yeah. under um your sexuality is a beautiful rose and if you pass it around to a bunch of guys and it becomes filthy and broken who would want you anymore if you're this disgusting shattered rose and there's a moment where luke's voice kind of rises and he says who would want that rose jesus does 
And it honestly like makes me cry. Like I cried while I was reading that passage because of how powerfully that original metaphor is lodged in my brain and how much shame is carried in that and how much of a relief it is to have that shame be kind of taken away by another like authority figure, another male Mm -hmm. authority figure, but it's still a purity sermon. It's still ultimately about getting his daughters to pledge that they won't have sex before marriage. And I was really, really curious, like how this sermon like came to you, like how you shaped it and like what you see it saying about the potential for like subversion and feminism within like the evangelical church. That's yeah, a lot. So some of the, no, that's a great question. I mean, the earliest stuff I had was, were like Luke Nolan sermons, right? Like I had like whole sermons written. Um, none of those made the book because they are boring to read. Um, <laughs> no sermon sounds that good when it's written down, because if you've heard any evangelical megachurch pastor speak, it's all about their cadence, right? Mm-hmm. It's how they say the things that they're saying that actually matters, which is why like in that section, you only get like little snippets of what he's saying, the important things. But I think for me, something I wanted to be really cautious of in this book is talking about the way that modern evangelical Christianity is self-aware, right? So this idea that like a pastor like Luke Nolan knows outside criticisms of the church. He's aware that society is like saying that the evangelical church doesn't care about women and only cares about purity and that like there's this these stark lines. And so he wants to fight that, right? He wants to create content essentially that people can consume and then say like, oh great, that's not us. We are better than that. And, but he's doing the same thing, right? So it's like (laughs) the sermon makes you feel better. It's emotionally manipulated in a way that you come out of it saying like, oh, my pastor doesn't believe that women who sleep around are you know, tattered little roses. He believes that Jesus still loves them. But the moral of that story is that you need salvation for that behavior, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like the moral of the story is that it's still wrong. We just still love you, right? (laughs) Which isn't really like, it doesn't, you don't like fucking get it. And I think that's the, that's what I was trying to do with that section. And with these like sermons of Luke's is show that he's like aware of the outside world but also to show that like these can be really effective. And if you are sitting in that, like if you heard that that sermon in person, you would be like, I'm covered in goosebumps, right? Like this works and it works because they know how to do it, right? It's standardized. And that I think is like, that's the thing that is so powerful to me about these guys. And like, they're all guys is that they know how to hit those emotional points in you and they've figured it out and they'll call it certain things of like, Oh, it's the Holy Spirit, right? Or, oh, it's it's the work of God. And maybe it is, but it is extremely easy to use that for manipulation and for personal gain. And that's kind of what I was trying to do there, right? Is here's a sermon that's ostensibly for young girls, but is actually for Luke Nolan. Yeah, and I think that that comes to another theme that I think both Claire and I picked up on, which is the way that you really brilliantly depict how Luke Nolan's success in so many ways is dependent on the life experiences and the conformity and the kind of magnanimity of his wife and his daughters. Like he would not be Luke Nolan without these women, you know, standing by him, behind him and kind of 
giving him, giving, giving him material giving, for his giving sermons. him material. Yeah. Giving him material. Um, and kind of one of the great tragedies of the story for me was like just seeing Abigail's kind of raw talent and energy, um, and the way that like that talent is funneled through her father and like allows him to maintain his power and his spotlight and sort of be like fueled in his own self-importance. Um, I'd love if you could speak a little bit to kind of that, that dynamic and how it shows up in the book and how maybe you've seen that show up in, in real life. Yeah, of course. I, so because I'm doing more of these interviews and I'm like writing more about the book now, my like phone, you know, is listening to me and the algorithm has like understood that I'm interested <laughs> in these things suddenly. So I was, all that is to say, I was scrolling through TikTok yesterday and this girl popped up on my feed who is like a, you know, she has an OnlyFans and she like um, identifies as a witch. And she was talking about growing up as a pastor's daughter. And she was like, yeah, one of the most frustrating things is that now as an adult with full autonomy who has left the church, my father is still using me as examples in his sermons, <sighs> right? As a way to yes. be like, here yeah. is the failure of my daughter. And here is like, we need to pray to bring her back. Right. And there's a certain mm -hmm. kind of like traumatic invasion that that creates. Right. And she was talking about how like, it's very harm harmful and hurtful to her to have to like hear from people in her hometown that her father is talking about her to all of these people, right? So this is a real thing. It's a real problem. Um, and one of the things that I wanted Luke Nolan to be like that, I wanted him to be the kind of person who would use his family's traumas for his own personal gain, but I wanted his daughters to be smart enough to know better than to give them to him, mm. right? So mm. for Abigail, there is power in being good at this kind of thing. There's yeah. power in knowing what to tell your father and knowing what not to tell him. Right. And there's power in making sure that the way that your story is presented is one that paints you in a really good light. And so I think she, I mean, I think she's extremely talented, this fake person I've created, <laughs> but I think she is like, I think she knows that. And like the, yeah. The flip side of that coin, right, is you know that if you fuck up, it can be used against you. And so, like, that is kind of where that balance sits to me, right, of her, like, awareness of his power as something that she can only partake in to a degree. Science yeah. question? <laughs> no, totally. And I think that that is what's so wonderful about these characters is that they're not just, like, victims of circumstance. They do have agency and perhaps that agency is limited in in different capacities but like they're not stupid and they're not weak um yeah. and that is really key to I think the humanity that's behind your your story they also are the head pastor's daughters right which is a position of power mm -hmm. there are a lot of women in that church who would not have that kind of access or that kind of ability to change the way they're perceived yeah that's absolutely true and there's something about um, the the way that Abigail is positioned that you see the the power that is lent to women who who are good and who conform because some you're, someone's going to be talking about you no matter what someone's going to be telling a story about you you don't have the power over that story but you can have it be a, a nice story you can have it be a story. Um, that makes people want to support you and give you things, or it can be a story about how you're a witch who has fallen away from God. And a Abigail sees this power in keeping in good and, 
and bending it as much as she can to her actual objectives. Um, whereas Carolyn has a there. different. Yeah, go on. Oh, sorry. I don't mean to interrupt no, you. No, but no, the go verb on. you used there is really interesting, right? You said the power that is lent to women in these situations, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That like mm-hmm. Abigail's power is not something she has on her own. It's something she's allowed to have as long as she uses it within the like rule boundaries that her father has created for her. And that's something that like I find fascinating, this idea that you have all of this power that you want to use, but you're also aware of its constrictions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the power that is that that you are able to wield as like a woman in a very patriarchal structure is completely contingent on whether you you can't use that power to take down the patriarchy, for example, like they're not going to allow that. So the power that you can have is only that you exercise it on behalf of the structure. Um, And that's so like that's so visible through the women who surround Luke Nolan. And it's not just Abigail, like what you see really is that women make like everything happen in the church, that women are doing mm-hmm. everything. Um, it's not, there's Abigail, there's, there's Ruthie, Ruthie there's the, uh, mom. the mom, there's Mrs. Debbie, who is kind of leads the women's ministry and is very powerful in the church. There are fleets of like women volunteers. So you see these women chugging along, like kind of doing everything. And then it's just Luke up on stage. Um, but he can't make all of that happen on his own because women run everything um, without having any power. But that was actually interesting to me. I mean, Catholicism, women are kept so far away from anywhere where they could be influential because you can't be married to a priest or be his daughter. Um, You can't really have very many official roles in the church. So in the evangelical faith, I I almost feel like there has to be this very um, rigid, hierarchy and role making because women are able to get close to the seat of power and you can't let them like seize it like you have to be like (laughs) you're here but you're only here you're not like creeping out of that little bubble right you have to create some sort of containment structure to make sure that someone stays in the role of like symbol rather than elevated to like the one saying the thing Yeah. I know that I, th- I know that some some strains of Judaism are better about this and some like progressive strains of Christianity are better about like actually having women in leadership for yeah. faith. But it's interesting because like in all faiths, regardless of who's in power, it is women who maintain the like tradition and culture usually, right? Like in polling, we see that like women are much more faithful than men. Like in most of these families mm-hmm. where like the father is the head of the household, it's the quote unquote, it's the mother who's getting the kids ready for Sunday school, right? It's the it's the mom who's making sure that faith is practiced. And, and so it's and the, passed on to the next generation. And, yeah. And the tradition of it. Right. And that's the thing that is interesting is it's like, okay, so you're the one up there, like cute. You're teaching this little sermon every week. And I'm <laughs> the one at home, like doing all of this work to make sure that this line continues. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, it's, uh, it's something that, that runs throughout so many, so many aspects of American culture, honestly, like anywhere that there's patriarchy, there are women like doing all of the enforcement and doing, (laughs) doing all of the, the work to pass it on. Um, and, and men who are able to sit at the top because of that. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about like the celebrity aspect of being a celebrity preacher, which you've touched on, um, the way that you like dissect Luke's 
public presence and his sermon, uh, his cadence, the way that he constructs his sermons is so fascinating. You say you wrote a lot of the sermons first. I mean, is this just something that's like baked into you from years of experiencing them? Like, do you, could you just write a sermon in your sleep now? Yes. I mean, <laughs> I think a lot of it is like, I went to church, you know, every week for my entire life. And so it's just kind of like, I've been steeped inside this cadence structure. Um, I think it's also that I like for a very long time was very obsessed with celebrity pastors. Like I have a bunch of alt Instagram accounts and one of them I only use to follow like celebrity pastors and like uh, Mormon moms. And it's like a very interesting, you know, feed of just true um, devotion is a word you could use for it. Um, But one of the things I really noticed there following pastors on Instagram is specific is that like they are doing the same thing there, right? Like it's this curation of personal image that allows them to have power. And that's something that we're all kind of doing now with social media, but it's something that pastors have been doing forever because evangelicalism isn't, it's, hmm, it is like personality dependent, right? Your church doing well requires you to have some guy on the stage who everyone loves. And like Mm -hmm. that guy isn't Jesus, it's some like six foot tall preacher. And that is like a fascinating thing to me, that cult of personality that you have to build almost, I mean, it's always been almost like a celebrity at the local level. And now, you know, we have like fucking Carl Lentz, who is like an actual celebrity. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We we wanted to talk about Carl Lentz actually. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Perfect segue. Um. Yeah, because the central crisis of the novel or like the, the the first thing that kind of punctures the bubble of this family is that Carolyn and Abigail find out that their father had an affair uh, with some, with a church uh, congregant um, and he has to confess it to the family. He has to confess it to the whole congregation. Um, it's this massive fall from grace. And coincidentally, this is like almost exactly what happened to Carl Lentz, pastor to Justin Bieber, I think. Uh, for, I believe former, former former pastor yeah uh, this past year <laughs> so like what were you thinking when you saw all these revelations about Hillsong and Carl Lentz coming out last year I mean I was like selfishly I was very mad because I was like could you not have waited one waited. more year yeah right like could you dude. not have done a better job of hiding this and had this publicity <laughs> scandal come out in May right like I was mad <laughs> selfishly but it's like yeah, it's happening everywhere. This is, I would not be surprised if between now and the time the book comes out in like what, two weeks, we got another one, right? Like the the thing is when you have this much power and it's this unchecked, you think you can do anything. And for most like powerful, mostly straight white men, the decision they're going to make is to sleep with someone they're not supposed to, quote unquote, not supposed to sleep with, right? And so it's like affairs in the church are everywhere, all the time. Like several people have asked me about Carl Lentz, but people have also asked me about other pastors. They're like, oh, is this about him? I'm like, it's about all of them. (laughs) (laughs) It could be any of them. And that's the thing that is like, yeah, I was furious about Carl Lentz because I was like, couldn't you have like done me a solid and waited a year? Like, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, I was like, a creep. just wait a little bit longer to make it useful. I was going to say like, it happens to all of them. It's not like, do you know of a famous evangelical preacher that like, hasn't been caught in an affair? They're all doing it. 
Um, it just, it yeah. goes with the if territory. If they're not caught in an affair, they're caught like hiding one, right? Like that's yeah. the thing. It's like, or if something they worse or something worse. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, they want to protect their power. And that's the thing that like, I wanted to be really clear about with Luke Nolan is that for him, the like his apologies, right? Like his bad, quote unquote, bad feelings about having an affair are entirely based on the consequences of that action. They are not about his actual action. What he wants is to maintain the seat of power he has and he'll do whatever it takes to be able to keep that. And so that's the kind of like, yeah, they all do it. And if they're not having an affair, they're taking too much money or they're Mm -hmm. hiding some other scandal or, I mean, I'm sure there are good pastors. There just are not many of them. (laughs) Yeah, and if, and if they're good, you probably don't know about them, right? Because if they were that great, right. they wouldn't be spending all their time trying to get Doing famous on promotion. <laughs> I just don't personally, I don't think that you can have the kind of money that these pastors have and actually believe what you claim to believe. And I will yeah. go to my grave yeah. saying that. Like, I think the Bible is really fucking clear on where the, on how rich people perceive faith and so it is very interesting that you have like these men who are in charge of leading faith groups who are also making a million dollars a year you know it's like the the text that you're teaching says that this is unethical so what else is are you bending the rules on well they came up with a whole new gospel for that the prosperity gospel which is (laughs) ignore the new testament if you earn money it's because god loves you and you should keep it and buy a pool with it probably you know i just wish god loved me a little more (laughs) i know i know i that's that's how you know you're living in sin is that god hasn't blessed you with wealth (sighs) you're right (laughs) maybe maybe next year you know really i'll chew on that (laughs) yeah there's uh there's something about the way that that luke is constantly performing he makes little jokes and like in the same little like structure, the whole family does it. Um, That's not like pastoral work. I would think of a preacher from something like, from like Marilyn Robinson's work, you know, where they're very, um, there's a, a, an emphasis on wisdom, like, oh, everything that I, that I say is based on deep rumination about the gospel. And then there's this sort of like, I'm dropping jokes. I've got my like catchphrase that's on t-shirts that the church volunteers wear. Like none of that is really about, um, about helping people's souls. It's about about branding. branding. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like he's a master performer and a master of branding. And there is like, like he, you do a really good job of depicting how good he is at that performance. And then how, how much of a hard time he has actually having any sort of like emotionally empathetic conversation about his actions with his own immediate family. Like, I think that at one point there's a conversation between Caroline and Luke and you just can feel her frustration. Like she's hitting against this wall of a man who like cannot see outside of himself because all of his energy has gone outward and into like creating his, his, his own kind of sellable persona. Um, and I think when you're also, when you're selling God and you're selling faith, mm-hmm. like that is inevitably really, really messy. Like just yeah, capitalism it's, kind it's of so American. It's, it's like yeah, to it's have a most faith, American to have churches based around individualism in this way, like the, the competition to be a good preacher 
to have the the funnest personality at parties to like be able to fill the most seats um it's such an american and such a capitalistic way of approaching uh religion um and at one point like carolyn sorry go on Oh, I was just going to say, you mentioned Marilyn Robinson, who is like one of my favorite writers. And one of the things that I think she does brilliantly is this kind of like internal struggle for pastors, right? This like preachers in her case, right? People who are deeply concerned about their faith and how it interacts and how, what it means to be quote unquote good. Right. And I think part I, it is intentional that we do not really hear or see from Luke Nolan in this book. Like, I don't really care what he's doing, to be honest. But part of that is also because these guys don't have anyone, right? Like most people having an affair are going to tell someone who is Luke Nolan going to tell, right? Like he doesn't have this kind of network of people. He's alone. Mm-hmm. And that's the consequence of creating this perfect branding, right? It's like, if your brand is that you are a genius and you're perfect and the Lord has blessed you, there's no room for you to have like real friends. <laughs> you just kind of have yeah. to suffer in silence alone, which is like Caroline is frustrated. She can't like get through to him. But I am also, I mean, I don't know. I made these people up, but I'm like, Luke Nolan, <laughs> does he even know, right? Does he have any idea what he thinks or feels, right? Like, I, I don't know that he does. I think he spends so much time focused on his like own perception of himself that he doesn't necessarily have the emotional maturity to ask those questions. Yeah. Yeah, It's lonely at the top. (laughs) And it creates a loneliness for all of them. Right. Because, and we keep hearing that Carolyn and Abigail are surrounded by people they've known their whole lives. Like the door opens and just in sweeps a horde of women they've known since they were born. And that's constantly happening. And yet they don't know any of these women really like they're alone they're always alone and we don't even get to know anyone really except for these two girls. So that sense of isolation is very profound in the novel. And that's created really by their dad. Like the fact that their dad is so powerful and that there are these expectations for them. They can't admit vulnerability to anyone in a way that would create a true friendship. Because I think this is in there at this point, I've revised this book so many times that I'm like uncertain exactly what is in this po- copy, but I think it's in there where Kara, where it's talking about how were they to misbehave their the consequences are their father's job, right? Essentially like they can't be vulnerable with anyone. They can't open up. They can't have flaws because were they to do those things, the ramification would be the questioning of Luke Nolan's ability to parent. And if you are questioning Mm -hmm. Luke Nolan's ability to parent, you are then also immediately questioning whether he can like lead a congregation of people, which is only parenting. And so it's like, they don't, they know, even if it's never verbalized, they know that internally, right? They know that like, if you fuck up, it, it has massive ramifications on everyone around you. And also on like your family's source of income, which is not a great position to be in as a young person. No. Yeah. That's, and that's one thing that, you know, the Catholic church really does right is that none of the priests have children because they have to be celibate. And we all know that's going great. Yeah. Uh, that for works everyone. out really, really well. Mm-hmm. No flaws at least, there. At least yeah. they don't have kids. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Like that, that's, they're, they're under incredible pressure um, from, from the, from the minute really that they become conscious. Um And so is Ruthie, although we don't really see it, that like the pressure that the wife is under to forgive and to stand by 
is really profound. Um, where are we? We've jumped around so much in our notes. This always happens. I, I wanted to talk about, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. That's the mark of a good conversation. (laughs) And that's what we're here. That's what, that's what we're here to do. Um, But I wanted to talk a bit about the ranch because the ranch and the land that so much of this story is set on almost felt like its own character. And, and I was curious kind of how you came up with the idea for the ranch and setting things there. And like, yeah, just talk, talk to me about the ranch. Cause I loved it. <laughs> I would love to talk to you about the ranch. The first <laughs> draft of this book maybe later than that, maybe like the second and third drafts were so boring. Like when you say like, oh, it's a page turner. I'm like, oh, thank God. Because it's like (laughs) I spent years trying to make it a page turner because the first versions of this, of this book were just like, they're on the ranch. Right. And like, they're just like thinking about all of these things. And they were so, it was slow as hell, like very slow. Um, But I love a ranch, right? Like growing up, I grew up in Texas. I grew up like in what was then an exurb, right? So there were like mm-hmm. cows and stuff um, and the rich kids' families had ranches. And ranches are like these magical places where you go and like, you can just like see both horizons, right? Like there's nothing between, even though it's, they don't even have to be that big, right? Like on 10 acres in Texas, you can see both horizons, mm-hmm. which is crazy. And you're just like, oh, I'm in this like little bubble essentially, right? Like because the sky is so big and there's nothing to interrupt it, you can literally see like the circle of the earth above you. And it feels like you're entrapped in like a snow globe, which is cool. And it's like a very interesting feeling, but I... I think part of why I started working with the ranch was this idea of like property as not haunted by your past, but at least like imbued with it and your ability, your inability to kind of get away from that. Right. So even Mm. in the setting of the book, they are stuck. (laughs) They think they're getting away, right. They run away from their like little house to stay on the ranch for the duration of the scandal and they run into all of the problems that their family has always had, right? Like you can't (laughs) leave. And that is like kind of the, right. You lock the cattle gate behind you and you're stuck there and you feel like you're free, but you're not right. And that is kind of the, the space I wanted it to function in. If that makes sense. No, that makes complete sense. And I think you really get that, that feeling from it. Like there is this like vastness and you can see that and there's all this land and yet there's still a suffocation despite being like in the open air. Yeah. And so the ranch, just for uh, anyone who hasn't read yet, and we recommend reading it as soon as possible, (laughs) (laughs) is basically the girls inherited it from their Their grandmother grandmother. directly through Mm -hmm. their mother. Their mother was born on the ranch um, and they inherited it from their grandmother when she died. And so this is a place that they feel that is theirs, that they can go to be away from their parents' house where they both still live. Although Abigail is 24 and about to be married, um, <laughs> of course, because, you know, cultural, but, um, so yeah, like the, the one thing that I realized right away is that they, they go to the ranch to escape. And then like the next day, a bunch of people, just everyone come shows up. up, everyone shows up, <laughs> like they can't get away because their like birthright ranch is also a community piece of community property in a way people are always just like dropping by or bursting in or their events being held there so they're not actually in control or in a new place they've been seated this 
independent space and yet it's not independent at all. Um, right. The privacy doesn't exist, right? They've never had it. And that is, it's interesting because like, I don't know that they're aware of that, right? Like mm-hmm. they're like, oh, we're going to the ranch. We're free. And it's like, no, you're not right. Everyone knows where you are. Anyone <laughs> could pop by at any time and they know that. Right. And even though you don't have, you don't have to say that to know it, like in your body, um, I was going to say something else, but I forgot what it was. Yeah. Well, it's true. Like they do seem to feel very, because what they're escaping is clearly a very strong expectation that they not be out on their own away from parental or spousal supervision. Like until Abigail is married, the idea is that she's going to really remain under her father's watchful eye at all times. And that's something that like on a visceral level, I didn't realize until part of the way through the book, I was like, they're just going to a ranch together. They're just like two gals. Like, why not? It creates <laughs> a lot of consternation for the whole congregation. Like they could be doing anything out there, uh, which of course isn't true, but even the right. small <laughs> amount of distance from paternal supervision is terrifying. They're just like two unruly women doing whatever. <laughs> Well, that was something I thought about a lot when I was trying to decide, right? Because you make everything up in fiction, which is like very uncomfortable for me as a journalist. So I was Mm -hmm. like trying to decide (laughs) whether or not whose family the ranch would come from, right? Like, did it come from Luke Nolan's side or did it come from Ruthie's, right? And the reason I chose for it to come from Ruthie's is that I wanted there to be this kind of like her, their, them, their knowledge that their mother gave up privacy, right? That like she had the option Mm. for them to live alone and to not be watched and to have this kind of life on the ranch. And she chose not to give it up for power, right? And so even in their pursuit of something that their mother chose not to have, they can never get back to it, right? Because she made this choice to hand it over to Luke Nolan and now it is everyone's. Mm. And like that is kind of, even though it belongs to them, it doesn't. Right. Like, yeah, you say they can, they could be doing anything out there, which is certainly what their parents think, but it's like, they're on a road, right? Like people are driving (laughs) by, they're not like truly in the middle of nowhere, like hidden by trees. There aren't trees really in this part of Texas. Like they can see, they, they can, they haven't, they haven't left the community like at all. No. (laughs) And I, I wonder if that's like, there's a lot, you know, through this, this book, Caroline is thinking a lot about her choice to, to actually physically leave the community and go to college in, you know, another place and like how much like conflict there is around that. Um, is that something that you sort of took from your own experience or why, why was it important to have one of them like physically, physically leave? I think so I, this won't spoil the ending, but at the end of the books, at the end of the book, the girls end up in different places, right? With their, with their faith. One of them being like more committed and the other one being still in a questioning phase, right? They are like in separate spaces, despite having experienced all the same things, they are uncomfortably apart in this section. And I wanted to give Caroline the distance from her faith to have those questions actually answered, right? And that's part of, I mean, Certainly that is something that I grew up with, right? I grew up in a very tight knit evangelical community. And then I went to college and was like, wait a, wait a second. (laughs) 
like you guys were all doing these things like where what's going on here and it was like very eye-opening for me you know to meet people who believed different things Mm -hmm. and like even though I had gone to an arts high school that was like diverse and interesting and not as like closed off I was still embedded in that community and so while those questions could be in my brain I couldn't look at them right Mm -hmm. I could say like okay is this true that's a question I have but I couldn't like actually ask that question. I could just be like, cool, this is a question I have that we will not look at and we will just <laughs> shove deep down. <laughs> we will deal with that later. And I wanted to give Caroline both the space in the future to ask those questions, but also the knowledge that that space was coming, right? That like these questions, you can just tamp down knowing that you'll get to them later. Whereas if you were going to stay here, you need to like fully spiral out of control right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's there's definitely a way that we don't really see this path and it's hard to even envision how it would work like to fully rebel while staying because the community and the family are so controlling um, that that would end very badly. Like you can only see that ending very badly. The only way to rebel is to leave. I think, you know, there are people who rebel and stay, right? Like I knew them, you probably knew them, like people at your respective high schools that were just like, I'm not following these rules anymore. Like I'm going to do whatever I want. And I think in fiction in particular, there's an emphasis on like giving the tightest point of view to your messiest character, right? Like the person who is like having the hardest time and doing the stupidest things. And for Caroline, it's like, she is the messiest character in this novel. She's just like still very reserved, right? She's still (laughs) doing her best to keep it together. And I think that is more realistic for most people, right? Most people do not have the like fortitude and bravery to be like, you know what? Social norms don't apply to me at 17, (laughs) right? Like most people have a really hard time with any part of their personality that like goes outside of the community they're raised in. And the only place there is to kind of focus on that and deal with it is to leave and so I think for her like she wants to leave because of that she knows that difference exists yeah the the way that you depict Carolyn is so astute and I was struck by the way that Carolyn is always aware of how much space she's taking up um and it's like subtly present yes. throughout that like she she leans over but she doesn't just lean over she has to suck in her stomach oh my it's god like all of every those inch that your body takes up um, she's a, because she is like, I had to feel like it, she is having both the moment like that you physically have as a woman where you're like, my body is being watched. People need to know what my body looks like and that it conforms to expectations, but also like generally I, as a person, I'm starting to burst out of like the space that has been designated for me. And can I tuck myself back in? I just loved that. I did too. All of those details really like stuck with me because they're, that is how so many young women move through the world is trying to, to minimize the space they take up. Yeah. To make ourselves. (laughs) It's so terrible to be 18. Like it's just awful, right? Like you're like, this is so terrible for her, but I think it's also a product of like, I mean, I felt like that. You're both saying you felt like that, that like you had to not only be aware and self-conscious of where your body was, but you also had to modify it for observation, right? Like suck in your stomach, buy a size down in jeans, you know, whatever it is, even I think 
society is getting somewhat better at this, but it's like, even the body positivity movement is like, well, you still need to be hot. Right. Like, (laughs) and it's like, okay, but how, right. Like, and I think that is the problem at that age is your body is still changing and you don't know what to do with it. And also you're being told in 17 directions how to look and behave. And you don't know which one is for you yet because your brain is not done developing. And so you're just like frantic. It sucks. I I feel so bad for every teenager. It's the worst. And what I love is being in my thirties and now I'm totally at ease with myself (laughs) and chill. It all went away. Everything's perfect. (laughs) It's definitely better than it was. Yeah. It's definitely better than being 18. I will, I will say like, (laughs) at least I like more know how to dress myself now. Like there's certain things you do. Well, but that's well, the thing. Not- you learn how to stuff yourself into a form, right? Mm-hmm. That's part of it. Yeah. But I feel like now, right? Like I feel more, I'm more interested in feeling confident than I am in other people perceiving me in a certain way. Right. So like, am I still self-conscious? Sure. Right. Like I want to wear things that make me feel good. And sometimes they don't, and that's painful, but I am no longer trying to put myself into like a Navy A-line eyelet dress in which I feel like a Barbie and also hate myself so that like someone will be like, oh, you look so good. Like I'm no longer seeking that confirmation. And that's Caroline's problem is nothing she wears she likes. Everything she's wearing is for someone else's approval. And like, that's a terrible way to be. You're never going to be comfortable there. And like when you, I mean, and we've, we did a whole chat about like dressing yourself post pandemic. And I think this is something that came up just that feeling of like, when you are trying to um, physically cover yourself in things that don't feel comfortable or don't feel true to, to what you want to portray, there is like such a more like constant heightened awareness then internally of what you are wearing. It's like, you are, are more constricted by this garment and you, you can't think about anything else. Um, and I think that that's, that claustrophobia is a feeling that we get from Caroline a lot in the, in your, in the book. Yeah. There's something too about, sorry, go on. I was just going to say my therapist who is extremely talented, um, is constantly saying that like your brain isn't done developing until you're 26, right? Like you're not done. You're not done. You're not done. And so until that point, every, like all of these questions in your brain are like, there's the you in there. And then there's just everything else that you've absorbed. Right. And so even if the you in there is like, I don't like this, I'm uncomfortable. All these other things that you've absorbed are like too bad, bitch. Like you have to wear this. And so then you're like, I'm miserable. And so it's just like, you just it's so sad. <laughs> yeah. You have to wear all the stuff that's in there. Sorry. That's all the stuff that's in the closet. Um, the, the way that it like, that it contrasts with the way that, that Luke is always branding himself I also love because what we see is like both men and women are modifying themselves for public consumption, but in completely different ways. And his is like a storytelling craft and like a performance um, on that level, uh, telling an effective story, constructing it, delivering it. And for the women, it is all about like, well, are they made up? Is their hair curled equally tightly on both sides? If not, is something wrong? Uh, what does it say about their husband, the pastor? Like, should he be reinstated? Um, and the the girls as well, like going through this and like, does it make them sexually appealing, but in a way that's still godly? Um, and so it's all bound up in, in how they array their bodies. 
Are we all having fun just trying to fit into every social norm? Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> a life's work just like to bathing and that how sad shit, I am right? about this. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's I keep being like, that's not therapy. a question. It's just a feeling. No, it's um, great. I mean, every evangelical I've talked to, right? Like every evangelical person who's interviewed me has brought up that like when they go back to church in the last third of the book, um, Abigail is like approached by the worship pastor and he's described as like having a whole sleeve of tattoos and like a fedora right this like kind of branding as like the cool <laughs> pastor mm-hmm. and like it's true right like all the men in this book are socially performing they're all branding themselves for performance and for public consumption it's just easier for them right like luke's uniform is like wranglers which yeah. are famously comfortable right so it's like you're you're doing something totally different than the rest of us even though you think that we're all doing this right luke mm-hmm. would say that like well yeah we all present ourselves the best way and it's like yes but your wife has to get her hair colored every three weeks and also spends an hour curling it so it's not quite on par yeah every time that it right. said that they were in their sunday best and the men are wearing jeans i just like yeah, paused like, over that for a long second <laughs> and, like, oh, uh-huh. and, yeah. yeah and the way that you depict ruthie is like God, I, I needed a spinoff just about Ruthie because she, her character made me like viscerally extremely sad and just no. the way, oh my God. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, um, well, we're coming in a good the, way. <laughs> we're coming to the end of our, of our hour. So I wanted before we went, if you'd be, if you'd be down to like diverge briefly totally. from, from the book and talk about the bachelor because the bachelor has this evangelical like element to it that I think we all know it's a big part of the audience. It's a big part of where they get their cast members from. But like, for me, I can only identify those things in as much as an outsider ever can, which is I'm like, they always say I have something on my heart. I was going to say they talk about their hearts. That's, that's always, Mm -hmm. that's always weighing on my heart. Yeah. Weighing weighing on my heart. heart. I want to see what you have on your heart. They want to get to know her heart. Yeah. But I'm curious, like for you watching, like what are things that stand out for you as, as like drawing from, from this culture that you come from? Oh my God. So I will never forget Ben season I was at like a big party um in the episode it was it was the episode where he told the two women that women that he loved him right it was no. that episode big oh, moment. and he took off his shirt and he had that like giant rib tattoo and all I was in I was in the northeast right and so all the women around me did not grow up evangelical and they were like what is that and I was like that's a bible verse like I, I could <laughs> tell from the script right? Like the script on his ribs, I was like, it's a Bible verse. Like it's absolutely a Bible verse. And they were like, no way. Like there's no way. And I was like, no, I swear to you it is. Right. Like I was like, it is. And I know it is because I know so many men who had these, right. Or like had the scripture under their collarbone or like, you know, I was like, it's this very specific, like physical branding of what you believe. And like, it, was just so stunning to me because there are all of these things that when you grow up in a culture like that, you don't realize are weird until you start like noticing them in other people. And you're like, oh yeah, like she must be evangelical. And they're like, how can you tell? And I'm like, well, she like is doing this weird thing. And they're like, that's like, that is not a signal for other people being evangelical, like weighing on your heart. You guys have picked up on that one. 
but it's like also sometimes girls on the bachelor will be wearing like a delicate ring on their left hand finger and i'm like it's a purity ring right like it doesn't have a cross on it noticed that oh my gosh but it's a purity ring right like wow or they'll move it right like that's the big one is like there's a there's a brand in texas called james avery which is like the brand that everyone buys their purity rings from in the state of texas (laughs) and whenever there's a, a texas girl on there you'll see like a ring that's like a knotted ring or like something like that and it'll be on like her index finger right where it's like I'm like I see what you did like I'm like I see it you moved it <laughs> oh my She's god like, make that's no mistake incredible. I'm available yeah I'm but, available but but yeah, yeah I'm still good that's wild I have never mm-hmm. noticed that and I think because a lot of like real if you're really secular people just wear rings wherever even on your mm-hmm. your ring finger so I'm always just like oh they've got a bunch rings. of rings on I never noticed that and you know the the tattoo thing makes me think too, like, oh, there's this big thing in the book where it's like, oh, you can't desecrate the temple. You can't graffiti the temple by mm-hmm. getting a tattoo. That's what the daughter's here. But then there's the tattooed youth pastor who's a man. It's like, I guess only the lady body right. is a temple in that way. Well, and this is something that like is a Luke Nolan specific thing, right? <laughs> like he is like a weirdo and is like none of this. Like, but like, yeah, his pastors have tattoos. He's just like, not my daughters, right? Like right. my little mm. sacred daughters cannot be like besmirched right. by tattoos. Yeah. But usually on The Bachelor, you can tell people like the tattoos I can tell when they're like biblical. I'm like, that's. A, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of those. Like, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm always yeah, so fascinated because like if you look at the first season of the bachelor which we did like a deep dive on because we did when we did our live tour oh my god you're a couple so years brave. ago <laughs> um it was actually so fun to go back really but fun. there isn't really that like vein of evangelical christianity in that first cast like mm-hmm. you don't feel that and then you see very quickly kind of as as the show embeds itself in the culture it almost like naturally ends up attracting both an evangelical viewer base and also like an evangelical cast. And I'm curious, like I have my own thoughts, but I'm curious why, why you think that is like, what is this sort of like uh, almost natural fit between a show like the bachelor and evangelicalism? I mean, I think part of it is the goal of the show is marriage, right? Like the goal, the show's ideal is that at the end of the season, you get engaged and you get married. And in the recent seasons, we've seen this constantly being a problem because half of the people on the show are like, I don't know if I want to get married to this stranger I've known for (laughs) six weeks because they're like adults who are like, this seems crazy. And you know who doesn't think that? Evangelical Christians. Evangelical Christians are like, and this is still true. It is completely normal that you would like meet your husband, date him for six months, be engaged for six months, get married. Like it is like you are getting married before the hormonal effect of like your attraction has time to wear off. (laughs) And that is like part of it. Exactly. You have to, so you can have sex, but it's also just like the end goal is that you are like getting married, right? That's the goal Mm -hmm. for both sexes. Like they teach you both sexes for men and women they like teach everyone in the church that this is your goal and like on the bachelor they need all of those like patriarchal old-fashioned ideas to be in place because otherwise what's happening at the end of this show like it is less interesting if you're like cool I'm just like 
going to date 30 people and then find one to date for two more years. That's interesting, right? Like, <laughs> right. Everyone which is, is like, what no, ends up that. happening. <laughs> it's what ends up happening once the show ends often anyway, but you do need this like fundamental buy-in. Um, right. And, and I, yeah, I think a lot about paradise as like a concept, because <laughs> I think that I believe that Paris paradise was like introduced as a way to like recruit people who are not interested in the ideals of marriage onto the bachelor, because it's yes. like, oh, well, maybe you don't have to get married, but you could become a like micro celebrity and you could mm -hmm. go on paradise and just like drink and make out yeah, and like go be on our reality show. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, if you make it to top like 20, we can put you on the slutty spinoff and you'll have right. fun. And that is probably how they're recruiting a lot of these people, in my opinion, because unless oh, absolutely. you are like a hundred percent. I, I just don't believe that most people are like, oh yeah, my end game is to get married in like eight weeks. <laughs> no, and I think that that's why you saw probably this like spate of kind of like the middle of the show was so heavily evangelical because there wasn't this like potential path of um, social media celebrity and like there weren't such obvious upsides to just being on the show, even if you don't buy into that end goal. And so like, you did have this chunk of seasons that was like exclusively populated by white evangelicals. Yeah. And it worked like once or twice. We got a couple of marriages out of it. I mean, I mean frankly, paradise has like as many success <laughs> as stories. Um, the, the first season is actually really yuppie. Like the vibe of yeah. it is not, is, is just like yuppies who need to like make their power marriage happen. And that, demographic I feel like is drifting was drifting at the time and continues to drift away from marriage being like a vital signifier of of adulthood that happens when you're around 30 and so yeah that wasn't going to continue to have quite the same like urgent weight for that group but for, well, for people who have a faith-based motive you also that, have like the works. rise of internet dating in the middle of mm -hmm. this, right? Mm -hmm. And that changes your ability to find people to date in general. So like one of the keys for me to identifying evangelicals episode one is whether or not they say like, I'm here to find love or I'm here to find a husband. Mm. Like mm. usually the ones that are like, I'm here to find a husband. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, do you want to quote some Bible verses yet? Like, do you, mm. you're like, don't worry. It's coming. Yeah, Episode like two. 24. They're like, yeah. I need my husband. Yeah. Where that is, is always like the 24 yeah. year olds. They're like, I've been waiting my whole life. I still haven't found him. I'm essentially like washed up. Yeah. But that's like yeah. one of Abigail's big fears, right? She's like, I'm going to end up alone. And the thing is like, in Texas, everyone is married, right? So you're looking, unless you're in like Austin or Houston and in a specific group of people, you're looking around and you're like, everyone here in the South is married. And yeah. So it's, yeah. It it's a game of musical chairs, go. really. Yes. Yeah. It's like, oh, everyone got their seat and I was still circling looking for the best seat. And now, oops, all the seats are and those community are norms are so strong. Like I think so much about how like living my adult life in New York made it much easier for me to be like single throughout my entire twenties. And like, obviously still held a lot of like anxiety about that, but it wasn't like I looked around and there was no one else who was having that experience. Like it was very, or if there was someone else, they were like perceived as very sad and they, right. It wasn't a tragedy. It wasn't a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's exactly. also the thing, right? Is like I think there is more of an emphasis in sexual in secular culture on like find someone you actually like, right? Like make sure that you're marrying someone that like you want to spend time with all the time forever. Whereas like that emphasis is does not exist in the evangelical church. It's like find someone who loves God and loves you good enough, sign the paper, right? Like, <laughs> just like it's terrifying, right? Like half the accounts I follow on my like burner are these women who are like my terrible husband, right? Like all of their captions are like, I love my husband so much. He's an absolute piece of trash. Who's ruining my life. And I'm like, what? what? Oh my God. Send <laughs> me these accounts. Here? I need to like follow them on, oh my God. on my You'll love them. Finsta. Oh God. I makes me really obsessed depressed. with like Mormon mommy bloggers and that whole subset of internet celebrities, just <laughs> incredible stuff. Um, yeah, well, I think that we need to probably wrap up because we're, we're over an hour, but Kelsey, this has been incredible. Oh my gosh. So fun. Please, please. And come, please come back and recap, um, the bachelorette or paradise with us. Cause that would be a blast. I've had the best time. This is so great. Thank you both for having me. Of course. And everyone please go, uh, buy, buy Kelsey's book. God spare the girls. Um, Pre-orders are very important uh, for 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 authors. So pre-order, make sure you can read it right away. It's so good. It gave me so much insight into many sad bachelor and bachelorette contestants <laughs> and American culture more broadly. Uh, Kelsey, thank you so much. Thank you both. Oh.